Amen. So, this morning, uh, I pray that this message is something that will affect all of our hearts, um, and maybe make us just look a little bit more kindly upon one of one another, and that's that would be my hope for this message. Um, the text is in 1 John 2, verses 9 through 11. And the title of my message is Brotherly Love. Um, Matthew Henry said it very clearly, and I think it's uh, something that we could all take to heart. He said, Brotherly Love is still the distinguishing badge of every true Christian. Brotherly love is still the distinguishing badge of every true Christian. To uh, give it a context that we could understand more clearly, um, how do you know somebody's a cop? Their badge, right? The badge of the Christian is our love for one another. It's how we show that we are Christians. And in this simple quote, I think he has embodied exactly what John is about to say in this portion of text that we're going to look at this morning. And I think it, honestly, it truly embodies one of Christ's main foundational doctrines that he left with his disciples. He always stated these things about loving one another to them. And I think it's what the early church was established on, and I pray that it's what our church is established on. Now here, the infallible, inspired Word of God, 1 John chapter 2, verses 9-11. through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Father, we're thankful for your word. Establish it this morning in all of our hearts. Let us see how it can help us and change us each day. Help us to approach this set of texts and what you have to show us in a way that says my heart is open to be changed. And we thank you so much for all that you've done and that this word is in our hands and we can know what you have to say to us. Sanctify us in your truth. The word is truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, these are really good verses. John has a way of writing that I think is almost unparalleled, I think, in Scripture. I love the book of John. I love all of John's epistles. He has this way of writing things that I think is so clear, so plain, and so applicable very easily applicable to me and also John elevates Christ above all and I love that and he has given us some great truths here and I want us to do it like we should do it let's break it down in context we read verses 1 through 11 this morning so we could see what he was saying before to get to this point and what he's talking about is brotherly love that's a command that he gives us as a church right as the church we talked this morning in, sun, in Sunday school about the visible and invisible church. We'll get into that in here. Um, 
And this is going to show us how do we react to both. And I hope that's helpful. Let's start with verse 9. It says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Now, <coughs> we see two distinct kind of statements here. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother, and then we see that, his, that he is still in darkness, that same he, that same whoever. Let's break, let's break it down. It says, whoever says he is in the light. Now, what does in the light mean? It's not just a DC talk, DCT talk, DC talk song from the 90s. Okay, in the light means something very specific in Scripture. Based on the biblical view of it, we have to assume that it's directly equal to whoever is in Christ. In the light means in Christ. There's no light outside of him, right? Now, let me warn you, this is going to be very teachy. I'm going to, I'm going to have a lot of, a lot of uh, materials here. But I pray that it helps, it helps us all to move along, move forward in Christ. So how can, we break, how, how can we back up that that's what he meant by in the light? We're going to back it up with John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to him saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus there himself is saying, if you're in me, you're in the light. So we say, in the light means to be in Christ. Those who have repented and trusted in, the, in, in Christ, they believe the gospel that was preached, and they know the Savior, and he knows them. Basically, what this verse is beginning with is if you claim to be a Christian, if you say you're in the light, if you claim to be a Christian, and then it goes on and says, and hate your brother, you're still in the darkness. The first step here is to see John's context a little bit. We definitely need to see who he's talking to. That's part of hermeneutics, right? Who's the audience? Well, we have established that John, in his epistles, um, actually I've preached about it several times throughout uh, times that I've filled in the, the pulpit. I've been in First John, I don't know if y'all noticed this. But that he's writing this to believers that he himself taught. And it's possible that he was the one who gave them the gospel message that helped them to be a believer. And he's doing it in order to call them to repentance in all of the previous text. He's calling them to, to repentance. Now, he's talking about their interactions with others here. And it's a specific group of others that he's talking about them interacting with. The people he's talking to, the, say, the people he's saying, act this way when you have this interaction, act this way when you're talking to this group of people, he's talking about brothers. Now, in the original language, brothers is very easy to define. It is people of the same religious community or fellow Christians. Now, a great way to describe this group of people is a word that we use to describe this building, but it actually describes so much more, and that's the church. The capital C church, right? So John is talking about loving those of the church. It could be that there were disputes happening among brothers in Christ in the early church. Can y'all believe it? 
can't believe they would be disputing with one another about anything. But guess what? It continues today. We argue over secondary issues all the time. I see debates between brothers all over YouTube about secondary issues. And we all have probably seen and heard about splits because of preferences. Preferences. You know where preferences are not located in Scripture? But we've seen it. And this is what we've been going over in Sunday school, in my Sunday school class. And we've, I, I've, I mean, I've enjoyed the conversations. We've been having a lot of really good conversations about uh, essential, secondary, and tertiary, or preferences. And it's been a really helpful discussion for all of us. But in order to see the scope of this, I think it would be very beneficial to review aspects of the church itself. What is the church? What is it? And I've consulted in this sermon I, I, many orthodox sources, sources that we trust, sources that believe as we believe, that use Scripture as their basis, all those things. I've, I've looked and I want to see what some more studied men than me might have to say and help us define it, help us to, to describe this amazing group of people that are called the church. Louis Burkhoff, in his Systematic Theology, describes the church in this way on page 480 of his uh, Systematic Theology. He said, The church forms a spiritual unity of which Christ is the divine head. It is animated or brought to life by one spirit, the spirit of Christ. It professes one faith, shares one hope, and serves one king. It is the citadel of the truth and God's agency in communicating to believers all spiritual blessings. As the body of Christ, it is destined to reflect the glory of God manifested in the work of redemption. That's a beautiful statement on what the church is. We are the direct reflection of God's beautiful redemption through Christ. That's amazing to think that we could be that. And we continue manifesting his love that was shed forth very clearly on the cross by doing the work and the mission of the church. Spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the work and mission of the church. Who do we spread it to? Each other and to those around us. Now, this is a discussion that we had this morning in Sunday school, and it was very good. Um, the church exists in two forms. You may have never heard this, and I hope that it's helpful if you haven't. There is the invisible church, and then there is the visible church. And these two bodies are not necessarily the same thing. How do we know this? Because we know that there are tares that grow among the wheat, right? We know that. There are false converts in churches. There are outright sinners who attend local churches. And these are the visible church. The invisible church can sometimes feel like it's not as easily easy to identify, though. But let's look at both of these things. The visible church, the ecclesia, the assembly, 
Um, I think let's look at the 1689 London Baptist Confession in modern English to help us try and understand this a little better. Um, uh, London Baptist Confession 26.6. The members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly displaying and demonstrating in and by their profession in life their obedience to the call of Christ. They're willing, they willingly agree to live together according to Christ's instructions, giving themselves to be the, to the Lord and to one another by the will of God with the stated purpose of following the ordinances of the gospel. Now, our gathered church has a church confession, and we say, hey, we believe this, and guess what? If we believe this and we're baptized, guess what? We can be, what, members of this church, right? That's the gathered church. That, the group, that's the group that we need to be a part of if we're part of the invisible church. These are the people that we worship with and are many times they're the closest people to us. I know for our sakes, yes, the some of the closest people to us are our church family. Believe it or not, some of the, some of the people that are part of these groups are actually not believers in Christ as biblically described. In, in 26.5, which comes right before that, it says, In exercising the authority trusted in Him, the, the Lord Jesus, through the ministry of His Word, by, by His Spirit, calls to Himself, out of the world, those who are given to Him by His Father. We believe that, right? We believe that all who are the fathers will come to Him, right? They are called so that they will live before Him in the ways of obedience that He prescribes for them in His Word. Those who are called, He commands to live together in local societies or churches, for their mutual edification and the fitting conduct of public worship that he requires of them while they are in the world. So, some people who go to church don't fit that description. Get ready for this statement. I want us to hear it. Yet, we love all those we gather with. We don't necessarily assume that any are wheat or tares. We have gospel-centered interactions with each other and pray that all are in Christ. That is why it's essential that in the church we hear the gospel. We believe the gospel. We tell ourselves the gospel. We, we, we make everything gospel-centered because if there are some inside the visible church who are not in Christ, guess what? They need to hear the gospel, and we need to be the ones that give it to them with a smile on our face. Now, the invisible church, that's a different body. Now, this is what I would say about the invisible church, though. The invisible church better be part of the visible because all of the visible isn't necessarily part of the invisible, right? The invisible church is the body, the bride of Christ, his elect, and we as a church, should affirm what the Apostles' Creed says as what it states as the minimum beliefs of our faith. In it, we state that we believe in the Holy Christian Church. That is the universal church, the, the church, the big C church, the one that if we all gathered in one building, it'd have to be a really big building, right? We state these same, these same things in the songs we sing, like we believe, we believe that. In the Apostles' Creed by Emu Music that we sing here, 
we state that we believe that God has formed a church for a reason, right? In the London Baptist Confession 26.1 it says, The Catholic, that is the universal church, the little c Catholic, the one that wasn't stolen by a denomination, we believe that we may be called invisible with respect to the internal work of the Spirit and the truth of grace in our hearts, right? It consists of the full number of the elect who have been, are, or will be gathered into one under Christ, her head. The church is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And if you are in Christ, if you are in the light, you are that spouse, that bride, that, that piece of the body. That's you. So we see the visible and the invisible church. We know that the invisible is truly justified in Christ. And the visible may have a mix of believers and non-believers. Now, I'm, I'm a firm believer that we don't make non-believers members of our church. Right? They must be a believer, right? Which means they must partake in baptism. Uh, honestly, in a church like ours that preaches uh, just the Bible... Um, a lot of times, unbelievers won't stick around very long, but that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll pray that the gospel hits them hard, right? Do we love the unbelievers we may attend church with differently? Here's the thing, and I think we could use this as all one of our life statements. We are not God. He knows if they have a new heart, and we may not know. Some people put on a real good show. So we cannot make that judgment. Now, what's our reaction to that? I believe we do what the Scripture tells us. We love the visible church. We use Scripture as our guide, not our feelings, how we think it should be. We love the visible church, the people that we see every Sunday. We come into this building with, we love them. The people that go to church right over there, guess what we do with them? We love them too. People who go to church over there, guess what we do? We love them too. We love those who are part of the visible church. Biblical love for others doesn't necessarily look like what the world would define as brotherly love, right? Some say with brotherly love would be very affirming of all that they, all the choices that they make. Well, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to stick with, with, with the biblical definition here. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So let's break that down. Scriptural love has these specific characteristics. One, it's patient. Even if they're annoying, it's patient. It's kind. We approach our interactions in a kind way. It's not envious. It's not boastful. It's not bragging about everything that we can do that they can't. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's flexible. But without compromising foundational truth. It's not irritable. Though we sometimes wake up irritable, right? It's not resentful. What does that mean? No holding grudges. How many of you know people who hold, still hold grudges about stuff that happened in church? 
I still struggle with my own, right? It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. So, affirming sinfulness is not an option. It rejoices in the truth. Biblical truth. Objective truth. A truth that we know is Christ Jesus himself revealed in Scripture, right? That's how we love brothers and sisters in this visible church with us. So to hate our brothers would be to treat them in a way that is opposite of that, and that means it's sin. You hate your brother? This is living in darkness, which is truly living in sin. Verse 10 goes on to say, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. That's an interesting phrase. Let's, let's break this down. It says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. So brotherly love is one of the characteristics of abiding in Christ, period. We're in Christ. We should be loving our brothers. As we have seen, it also helps us to identify as a Christian, right? Now, we're a body that loves one another, right? That's how, that's a definitional thing that we do here. That's one of our definitions is uh, people who gather together and love each other. There is no other group, organization, club, society, anything that that is their basis for gathering together. Not a single one. You can't go to the Lions Club and have a definition of, we just love each other. Nope, not up there, right? They're there to, to, to do wonderful things to help people get glasses and stuff like that, right? That's what they do. It's not just to love each other. We are gathering together here this morning, and one of the main purposes we're here is to love each other. So, as individuals, we need to strive to love each other. We should pray for God's help in this. The Holy Spirit is the only way that this work can be done in us. Right? Now, it says that that, that that one who does walk in love for his brother and is in the light, it says that in him there is no cause for stumbling. The one who loves his brother has no cause for stumbling. Now, let's talk about the stumbling. So, how could we have no cause for stumbling? Truly, throughout our lives, everybody in here is going to have at some point some cause for stumbling, period. But what is it saying? In ourselves, to love our brother makes it impossible to hate him. And it keeps us from having sinful anger with our brothers too, right? And if we do have sinful anger with our brother, what do we do? We repent, right? Now, in other brothers, we may have a circle of friends. And those in our circle may join us in our seething anger or our hatred for, for another if we are spewing that out constantly, right? You know what you're doing? You're causing your brother to sin. 
And within a brother who's looking at me and how I'm loving others, if they see us loving our brothers and sisters, then they know that they're never going to interact with us and we're never going to interact with them in a way that might cause them to sin, which will lift them up, edify them. Our love or hate for brothers or sisters does not just affect us. It affects those we interact with. It affects those outside of the church, too. If we go outside the church and we're talking bad about what's going on in the church, I've seen it. You, you walk up to somebody in the grocery store and they want to talk bad about somebody at their church. Man, that doesn't make you want to go there and that doesn't make you want to be a part of their fellowship, right? That's why we love each other. Verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. And walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We need to take this in as a whole. Darkness here has a very important synonym. That synonym is sin. And I want to read this again and I want to switch those two words out so you can hear that synonym used instead of darkness. But whoever hates his brother is in sin and walks in sin and does not know where he is going. Because sin has blinded his eyes. That gives us some perspective on it, I think. To hate your brother is sin, plain and simple. Love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, some who don't know Christianity very well would say, well, does that mean you're going to hate everybody else? That's ridiculous. Right? That's ridiculous. No. We're not going to hate everybody else. Those who would say that Christianity is a hateful religion don't know true Christianity. They've seen something else, and it's not real Christianity. We love those who are not in Christ in a very specific way. We're going to have affection for those who are lost, who are family members and friends, right? We're going to have affection for them. But there's another way that we can love them. Those who are not in Christ, we love by giving them the truth. Not holding back the one thing that is the power of God unto salvation. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Calling them to repentance. Not affirming a sinful life. Because we need to share the eternal truths of who Jesus Christ is. And that there is a means of escape from this sinful life that they're living in. And that only way is Jesus Christ himself. I've always thought about it this way. Well... Not always, but should have always thought about it this way a lot recently, last five years. If I saw a giant hole that was bottomless and was full of fire the whole way, and I saw somebody get down in a running back stance and then take off running for that, and I'm the only thing between them and that, to have them run by me and me to say, Jesus loves you just the way you are is not going to stop them from jumping in that pit. What do I do? I tackle them and I say, 
you are going a way that leads you to destruction, and I'm not going to let you up. Which one was love? Which one was love? So in summing these things up, we need to make some distinctions and have some strong application. First, who do we love? We love brothers and sisters in Christ in our local church. Even if we have different preferences. We were talking about preferences this morning. I've been in some churches where if I was standing up here trying to preach in blue jeans, whew, I'd have been rode out on a rail. But we put our preferences aside to love each other. Secondly, we love brothers and sisters in Christ and other biblical local churches around the world, whatever they look like, right? Whether it's a dirt floor in Africa, whether it's in a basement in China, whether it's down the road where they don't believe exactly like us, but they're not a cult. Even if we disagree with them on some secondary issues, we still love them. Thirdly, we love people who may be deceived. Because there are some people also down the road who are in a heretical church and need Christ. We love them too. And fourth, guess who else we love? The lost. Because they need the gospel. They need Jesus Christ more than they need their next breath, and we need to give it to them. So, in case you didn't catch that, that pretty much covers everybody, right? Secondly, let's look at how we love. We love those who are in our church and in the church as Christ loves us, which is as a family. We're adopted sons and daughters. We're joint heirs with Christ. We are brothers and sisters with a great bigger brother who has taken our sin upon himself to save us. So we love as Christ loves. We love the universal church by praying for and supporting them when we can. Those around the world need prayer sometimes because I've, I've seen so many stories of men who stood up for their faith and belief and were murdered and killed just for preaching the gospel. We love those deceived by heretical teachings and heretical churches by calling them out of that falsehood and into scriptural Christianity, you'll get some arguments. But you know how we do it? Just like, like Peter told us to? With kindness and respect. And we love the lost by giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't affirm their sin. We don't try to be on their side and make them think that we're 100% for them. We give them the truth of the gospel and, and take it or leave it only God's going to change their heart, not us. Now that we see who to love and how to love, how do we dig deeper into applying this? Now, I'm not going to read all of this, but I want to read you a statement out of the London Baptist Confession of Faith, several different statements they have on it. It says, every church and all of its members, this is in 2614, the first sentence, it says, every church and all of its members are obligated to pray continually for good and prosperity of all churches of Christ in every place. Ephesians 618 says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayers and supplication to the end 
Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. For all the saints, we pray. And 3 John, verse 8 says, Therefore we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So we pray for them. We support them when we can, right? London Baptist Confession of Faith 27.1 says this, All saints are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by His Spirit, and by faith. Although this does not make them one person with Him, they have fellowship in His graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. Since they are united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obligated to carry out these duties both public and private, in an orderly way to promote their mutual good, both in their inner and outer aspects of their lives. John 1, 6 says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Philippians 3, 10 says, That I may know him and the power of his re resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. We want to share with Christ. We want to be with Christ. And not only that, I need your giftings. You need my giftings. You need these graces that, I have, that, that God has blessed me with. I need the graces that he's blessed you with. We need each other. We don't have this. We have broken fellowship. We can't grow. And I don't mean by numbers. We can't grow in our, in our love for one another. We pray for our churches around the world. We support our brothers and sisters in Christ whenever we can and whatever we, way we can. We share God's graces together. We worship together. We sing together. We disciple one another. We repent together. We take the Lord's Supper together when we take the Lord's Supper. These things are done together. The ecclesia, the assembly, the gathering together. We also partake in sufferings with one another. We uphold one another when things aren't going great. We help. We provide physical needs when we can. Why do we do these things? Why? The world doesn't do these things. This isn't what we're taught in school to do. We do this because we are the body of Jesus Christ. The very bride of Christ. We're one with Him. He is our head. An example of this is, is, in, the is in the conversion of Paul, of Saul, and, and R.C. Sproul points it out, in truth we confess, Saul was headed to persecute and imprison Christians. How did Jesus address it? In Acts 9, 1-4 says, But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues of, at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Think about that. Jesus didn't say... Why are you persecuting all my buddies in my church? He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Christ identifies that unity that we have in him. 
when we are in Christ. If he unifies with us, we need to unify with each other. We're one body. Christ's body. And he is the head. We should love one another as if we believe that. I'm going to leave you with this verse. Straight from Jesus' mouth. John 15, 12. This is my commandment. My commandment, he identified it as. That you love one another as I have loved you. Let's pray.